This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. If you know that your sin is forgiven, you need to be sharing that. And don't let the enemy come against you and say, no, you're not able to share because you don't know enough. And you know what? No matter how many times you've shared the hope of the gospel in your life and your family has shut you down, don't give up. We keep praying for our loved ones. We keep praying that the Holy Spirit of God would open their eyes so that they could see, so that they could understand, so that they could receive the hope of the gospel real quickly. All of us have loved ones, friends, and family that we desire to see walking in the truth of God's Word. We long for them to be saved, but sadly, many of them have rejected our Messiah's teachings. They refuse to listen to us when we try to share the gospel with them. But don't lose heart, believer. Just submit to God. Allow Him to work in and through your life. By His grace that produces the fruits of the Spirit, they will see His goodness without us ever sharing a word. Let's join Pastor David in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 3, with the conclusion of our message entitled, Jude, Contending for the Faith and Introduction. Verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, let's stop right there. Do you think that maybe his brothers were trying to be the greatest PR team for Jesus' ministry? No, no, that's not the case. They weren't acting in a, in a positive way toward Jesus. And we know that because of the very next verse. The very next verse, verse 5 says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. You see, they were taunting him. Oh, you're the Messiah. Then why don't you go on ahead? You want to show yourself? Go on ahead. Go on ahead. They were, again, just this, this push, this tease, because, again, they did not believe in him. As Jesus' ministry continued to grow and the number of his followers continued to increase, his brothers still didn't believe in him, even though they saw miracles happening before their very eyes, even though they heard firsthand the teachings of Jesus, they still didn't believe in him. In the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read of an incident that took place during the highest time of Jesus' popularity in Galilee. Uh, again, a, a large crowd had pressed against this house where Jesus was. Look with me, if you would, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. And again, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, speak of this story, but it's most clearly given to us in Mark, chapter 3. In Mark 3, and all the way down into verse 19, speaks about how they went into the house, the last part of verse 19. They went into the house, and then in verse 20 it says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. That, In other words, the press against them was so much, they didn't even have time for dinner. They didn't have time to take a break at all. There was such a crowd, such a press of people that was there. In verse 21 it says, But when his own people... You can circle or underline that little phrase, when his own people. When his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, what? He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. What is this 
own people. The New King James Version, again, uses that phrase, when his own people. If you have a King James Version this morning, yours reads, when his friends. But again, the actual Greek phrase there has the meaning, uh, literal translation, of those from the side of him, those that were closest to him. And although it could have a, a, you know, a variety of meanings, most scholars look at it and say it most likely means his kin people, his family that were there. And nearly all other translations actually read it that way, his family. We get a little better understanding of that relationship and the clarity of what they're speaking about, the, again, his own people, a little bit later in that same chapter. It's the same incident that's taking place in the same chapter, a little bit further down in verse 31. Same thing going on, it's just an extension of the same event. In verse 31 of Mark 3, we read, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother." So first off, we see Jesus really differentiating between this physical relationship of his mom and his brothers and the spiritual relationship of those, again, who were his followers. I know for many of you, your, your Christian family, your Christian brothers and sisters are closer to you even than your own flesh and blood family because your flesh and blood family perhaps are non-believers and your walk in the Lord is a point of contention almost every time you get together and it becomes a real struggle. And so again, when we say brother to each other, it is that kind of an attitude. You're as close to me as a brother because there's like-mindedness in that, like attitude, like understanding of it. But the second thing that I want you to also see in this is we see how his physical family, again, thought that he was either insane or that he was possessed. At that same place, there were the scribes, the, the lawyers that had come uh, down from Jerusalem. And they thought the same thing. A little bit earlier in that passage, in verse 22, the, it says uh, that uh, the scribes were saying that he has Beelzebub, and by the rulers of demons, he casts out demons. Well, it's understandable that the religions of the world, or the religious people of the world, didn't connect with Jesus. But he's also really clear here about the disconnect between Jesus and his own physical family. His own physical family didn't believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. They thought that he was nuts. So much for family support, huh? And as I've shared, I know that some of you have that same situation even today. You've been praying for your family to come to faith in Christ, that they themselves would get saved, that they would become part of the kingdom of God. And yet even at that, they mock you. Let me encourage you, don't give up. Continue praying. Because God's not done yet. 
a little bit later when Jesus went back to minister in his hometown of Nazareth. Remember the story. He went to the synagogue and he was speaking to them there in the synagogue. But yet at that point in time, there was a rejection of the entire community as well as his family. Again, the incident is found in uh, both Matthew and Mark, and both Matthew and Mark give a list of the names of Jesus' half-brothers. Staying in Mark, if you're there, flip over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, the leaders of the community, uh, and down in verse 3, said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. That's his community. That's where he grew up as a child. That's where he stayed for most of his early life up until his 30s before he entered into ministry. And now his own community and probably extended relatives are offended at him. Verse 4 says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, And in his own house, and to kind of help you to understand what he says in kind of a negative way or a turned around way, what Jesus is saying is a prophet has honor every place except his own country, his own relatives, and in his own house. Once again, we see the rejection of his Messiahship seem to continue all the way to the cross, this rejection, this taunting, this removal of any faith or understanding of who Jesus was. But then something happened. Something happened that took place that changed their minds even at that point. Something happened that caused them then to believe, to finally confess that Jesus Christ was their Messiah, that he was the Son of God. I personally believe that what happened that caused them to change their mind was the resurrection. It is the power of the resurrection that really and truly makes Christianity what it is. Because without the resurrection, there is no hope for us. I believe that after the resurrection of Jesus is when that change took place because it's after the resurrection that we see suddenly that his brothers are having a part and taking place as a part of the community of believers. When we look in the upper room, if you want to flip over to Acts chapter 1, remember that upper room experience that after Jesus ascended into heaven, And they went then back into Jerusalem to that upper room to pray. In Acts chapter 1, we'll look at verse 12, beginning there. It says that they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, you need to understand, here's, here's some names that remind us back of the names of Jesus' brothers that we read in Mark chapter 6, but you need to understand that there is a difference. As a matter of fact, Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, he taglines the names, again, of this James. No, James the son of Alphaeus. Not the brother of Jesus. No, Simon the Zealot. 
And then Judas, the son of James. Again, different ones because he continues on in verse 14 where he says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and now with his brothers. And I think that is a great testimony of, again, the change of their hearts and lives to those that thought that he was nuts, that he was insane, that he was possibly demon-possessed. Now they're in the upper room praying with the other believers. The brothers who doubted Jesus now became believers. The family that taunted Jesus now became followers. The sons of Joseph that thought he was nuts now realize, no, Jesus is the Son of God. And here in the upper room, his brothers meet together with all of his closest followers. They're seeking the power from on high, the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and everything is changed for them in their life. We look, James, Joseph, Jude or Judas, and Simon. None of those guys were apostles. All of them were the brothers of the Lord. And again, we read how they're there in that upper room. Now we do know that at least two of his brothers, they rose up as leaders in the early church, but neither of them played off of their physical position as half-brothers of the Lord. Both of them walk and they speak and they write with this great humility as they introduce themselves. It's James, the brother of Jesus, that wrote for us the book of James. It's James, the brother of Jesus, that Paul speaks about in Galatians chapter 1 when he tells us that after three years, Paul went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and he remained there for 15 days. And then he says, and I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Suddenly now this one who had been a doubter is now a leader within the church. It appears that early on, James, the brother of Jesus, he became that leader. We also read about this same James as being a spokesman for the first council of the church there in Acts chapter 15. And he appears to have a final say-so even above Paul and even above Peter at that point in time. This is different than the Apostle James. We know that because the Apostle James was martyred back in Acts chapter 12. Now we're in Acts 15, and we see James, I believe the brother of the Lord, speaking up. But enough about James. What about Jude, the writer of this epistle? The brother of Jesus who bore the name of Judas is the same one that wrote the epistle of Jude. And probably by this time, you're probably saying to yourself, So what? How long are you going to hammer this? What's for lunch? The first thing I want you to see this morning in in all of my ramblings is how even with all of the testimony, all of the miracles, all of the teaching of Jesus during that earthly ministry, there seems to be nothing that connected with his brothers until Jesus' death. It was at that point, it was at that time, that there seemed to be that sudden change in these men's lives. Now they were counted among the followers of Jesus. So you need to understand, this is what I want you to get out of this message this morning, that those, even in your family that you're witnessing to, they will never get it, no matter what they see in your life. 
And the enemy's going to come, and he's going to, again, trouble you and say, oh, you blew it. You, you raised your voice. You said the wrong thing. You had the wrong attitude. Oh, they saw that action in your life. They'll never believe Christ now because you have blown it. That's what the enemy will do to discourage you. You need to understand that your family, your closest relatives, they'll never get it, no matter how clear you present the gospel. Because the enemy is going to come to you and say, you know what, if you would have used that other verse in Romans instead of the one that you used over in Galatians, that would have opened up the whole thing for them. And see, you forgot that verse. You forgot how that verse went. You stumbled in your presentation of the gospel. They'll never believe now because it's all your fault. And that's what the enemy will do to us. You need to understand that your family will never get it, no matter how many times they've heard the gospel message. Do you realize how many times that Jesus' brothers probably heard the truth? How many miracles they saw, how many teachings they were under, and they never got it that entire time. Beloved, if it didn't work for Jesus, why are you letting the enemy beat you up about your own testimony to your family? Because, gang, your family will never get it until they themselves come to the cross of Christ. Until they themselves are willing to humble themselves before Almighty God. Until they themselves understand the greatness of God's love for them and the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. God will use you. And you do need to be testifying. Your life does need to show the reality of Christ in it. But when you blow it, don't beat yourself up. Continue on. Lord, just use me for your glory. Help me to do this thing right, but don't let the enemy beat you up. If you're stumbling even in your presentation of the gospel, don't let the enemy beat you up that says, you know, you're, you're not even right to be sharing. You, you don't know the Bible well enough to be able to share your faith. You need to back off. You need to learn more before you share. No, if you know Christ is your Savior, you need to be sharing. If you know that your sin is forgiven, you need to be sharing that. And don't let the enemy come against you and say, no, you're not able to share because you don't know enough. And you know what? No matter how many times you've shared the hope of the gospel in your life and your family has shut you down, don't give up. We keep praying for our loved ones. We keep praying that the Holy Spirit of God would open their eyes so that they could see, so that they could understand, so that they could receive the hope of the gospel real quickly. Last week we were at a lunch with some friends. They were sharing with us about a 68-year-old brother who had been antagonistic against the gospel all of his life and continued to just, again, point his finger at his sister and said, you know what, it's just a crutch, it's not real, I can't believe that you guys believe in this fairy tale stuff of Christianity and all this church stuff, it's just a bunch of hooey and, you know, it's just ridiculous. Up to 68 years of his life, hard, hard, hard against the gospel. And then one day, that hard heart broke on him and was sent to the hospital and the understanding was is he probably only had a couple of days to live in a God incident of things not a coincidence but a God incident of things 
God brought into his life believing nurses that as they came into his room, they began to pray for him. They said, can we pray for you? Can you imagine a nurse coming up to you and praying for you? Then even his heart doctor would come in and say, you know, I'd like to pray for you because of the seriousness of the condition you're in. Would that be okay? And so when his sister came in who was a believer, he asked her, he says, you know, this is weird. Everybody wants to pray for me. How serious is this thing? She told him it's very, very serious. As a matter of fact, they don't think that you're going to make it. And it was at that time that in his heart, he literally got on his knees before Almighty God. And his heart was broken for God. And God did a work in his life that they told us during lunch. He says, we just can't believe this is the same guy. His friends can't believe he's the same guy. His family can't believe he's the same guy. At 68 years of age, suddenly he started going to church and getting involved, and he doesn't want to miss, and he's actively involved here, and he's, he's volunteering over here, and he's sharing his faith with people. And he's reading the Word of God, and they said, God dramatically changed him. He was truly born again. He's not the same guy that he was. Beloved, don't give up praying for family. Because you never know when God is going to have that intersection that they're going to have to understand the reality of who he is. Real quickly, not only to understand about your family, but also, secondly, both James and Jude, the physical blood connection in their life with Christ was not nearly as important to them as that spiritual connection. We see that neither one of them claimed title to being the brothers of Jesus. We recognize both of them as declaring, no, it's Christ in our life. Jude introduces his uh, epistle by saying, man, I am a bondservant of Jesus. James does the same thing. I'm a bondservant of Jesus. That's the choice of a slave. That temporary connection of family life, again, it only lasts during this physical life. But that spiritual connection with the family of God, beloved, that lasts for all of eternity. Of all of the things that these guys could have listed about themselves, the thing that they found was the highest honor, the thing that they found that was the the major distinction in their lives, was that they were bondservants of Jesus Christ. So my question I ask to you, how about you? Do you recognize yourself as a slave by choice to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you simply related by blood, physical blood? Because your mom and dad are believers, because your spouse is a believer, because of a family member that's a believer, a great-grandfather that was a believer. How are you related to Christ? Beloved, the only relation that really and truly counts is that spiritual relationship that comes by faith in that completed work of Christ. You can't have true salvation without it. I believe the Word of God is really clear. You and I come to the Lord for the forgiveness of sin, for salvation, for eternal life, and there needs to be that full surrender of our lives, of our rights, and of our future. What slave tells his master what he or she plans to do with their lives? They seek the master's will in their lives. And that's the difference between somebody who mimics a prayer or reads a prayer on the back of a card versus one who is broken before the Lord. 
It's much more than just saying the words, beloved. It's a heart and life that's changed, that's surrendered before Christ. Jude tells us that our Savior is the only one who is able to keep us from stumbling. He says that our Savior is the only one who's able to present us faultless before the throne of God. He says that our Savior is the only one who is wise. He is the Master who has glory and majesty, dominion and power. So I end you with this question this morning. Do you truly know Him or do you simply know of Him? Beloved, the difference between that is the difference of eternity. Do you know Jesus or do you simply know of Him? Pastor David is currently teaching through the book of Jude here on The Open Word. In this study through the book of Jude, we'll learn how vitally important it is for us to contend earnestly for our Christian faith these last days. You can get a free copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to www.theopenword.com. That's theopenword.com. Although The Open Word is a huge blessing, we pray that it's not your only source for the teaching of the Word of God. It's our hope that you're attending a church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. If not, we'd like to invite you to join us at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande for worship on Saturday evenings, Sunday mornings, or Wednesday evenings. For service times, driving directions, and more information, log on to theopenword.com and follow the link to Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Finally, we want to encourage you to follow us on Twitter and become a Facebook friend. Links are available at theopenword.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Please join us next time as David continues teaching verse by verse through the book of Jude. That's next time on The Open Word.